Welcome to Urban Dharma, the podcast, where suffering is optional. Hi, this is Reverend Kusla coming to you from downtown Los Angeles, from the International Buddhist Meditation Center in the heart of Koreatown. It's a cool June morning, but I'm sure the sun will be shining this afternoon and it'll be a typical Southern California day. What you're about to hear is part three, the final part of my interview with Roshi Egilku, the abbot of Zen Center of Los Angeles. So without further introduction, part three, the final part of my interview with Roshi Egilku. Just looking at me. Mm. <laughs> I'm looking at him. And I started the car and I drove off. Mm. Did you sense something about that? Well, I sensed something was different. Yeah. I drove back to the center. And usually when I dropped him off at the airport, I would stop off for a cup of coffee. <laughs> this time I didn't. I drove right back to the center. Went to the office and I said, did Roshi call? And they said, no. And you know what? He made it on the plane. Don't ask me how that happened. Wow. Because the next time I spoke to him, he was in Japan. Okay. So we spoke a week before he died. And he had called because he had extended his trip a week. Because he had been creating uh, an Inca document, the seal of approval for mm. Bernie Glassman, where he then takes on the title Roshi in our, in our line. And the person that he wanted to, to talk to about, about the document um, was not available to meet with right away, so he had to extend like a week. And when I spoke to him, I got how exhausted he was. And I just said, Roshi, you're, you're so exhausted. Please, please, you know, please take care of yourself. That was the last time I spoke to him. So one week later, we get a call. Mm. Roshi has died. Mm. We don't know any details. So Bernie, I call Bernie Glassman immediately, and of course he already knows. And and he said, "Why don't you fly to Tokyo?" He said, "You know, my wife Jisho and I are flying. This is the time we're arriving. Please meet us there." And I was able to get a flight that would landed like an hour after them. So I flew to Japan, and the people who were here, you know, took care of took care of the center. Um, but I just felt I needed to be there, sure. being his assistant and all of that. And so arrived in Japan, and you know, we got to the temple where his body was, and looked at that, and you know, and we were told that he had been found, you know, dead in his bed, and all of that. And of course, I believed everything I was told. I, you know, sort of my little naive self who believes everything I'm told kicked in. I didn't even think about anything else. It was just so overwhelming. Okay. <laughs> You know, and um, and so we just went through all of that. We were there for the entire funeral in Japan, which was like a huge thing, you know. And did they cremate him? Yes, as we do in Japan. And did they give ashes for the center as well or all his ashes in Japan? You know, the funeral is such that the disciples who were there, many of his successors were there, of course, not not all. Some of them stayed behind to take care of the sanghas here. But the way this funeral is done is that when it comes time for the casket to be closed, uh-huh. is um, everybody puts flowers in it. Mm. So we got to cover him with orchids. Wow. And the whole casket was full of flowers. And then the lid is nailed shut. And then a kesa, Buddha's robe, is put over him. And then his disciples carried him to the crematorium, which was just like across the, the uh, plaza of this huge facility in Japan. And we all got to watch him being put in the oven. Wonderful. Were you chanting when that happened? Yes. We were all chanting. Okay. And then we went back to another hall where we had a, like a little snack. And then I think within an hour, hour and a half, we were called to go back to the crematorium. And so 
we were all there and they opened the door and slid out you know the little platform that he had been slid in on sure and all that was there were ashes and bones so those are the relics the relics, the relics. It's mostly bone okay I guess it's just done in a particular way where you just have bone uh-huh. and so then the bones were put in these containers and they were brought to us in the middle of the room and we were each given two long a pair of chopsticks very long chopsticks I think we're just given one chopstick each and so in pairs we would go up and we would together like with another person each holding one chopstick we would pick up one of the relics and we put it in an urn Wow. Chanting the whole time was so powerful. I bet. You know, the impact for me was, is that it's like you take care of somebody mm-hmm. all the way through. It was so powerful and so healing. And I deeply regret that we don't do that in this country. Yeah, we're, you know? we're a bit afraid. Of, afraid I've done funerals where I've insisted that we'd be allowed to do at least part of this, you know. And people are always so grateful. Mm -hmm. But anyway, so then the relics were brought over. At that moment, did you have thoughts of impermanence? To see the the body and and, uh, we clean it, we bathe it, we comb it, we clothe it. And and then after years and years and years on this earth, we have two chopsticks picking up bones. (laughs) Isn't that amazing? No, it just seemed the most natural, okay. wholesome, healthy. Uh, it's just amazing. You, you, you know, in, yeah. in the midst of all that grief, it, yeah. there was a kind of joy about it. It's so powerful, this. Yeah. And so the relics were brought back. Okay. Um, his wife brought them back on her lap. And so they were brought back here. And so that happened in... I believe like the end of May in Japan, and we we then spent the next June, July, most of August planning his American memorial service with the relics, and that took many trips to Japan with Bernie Glassman and I going back to Japan, and and then with the sangha here it took a full three months to plan, and then we did that in Little Tokyo at the Japanese American Culture Community Center. It's a very elaborate uh, funeral service. I regret we did not videotape that. Yes. Although the one in Japan we did vi- was videotaped. Um, and so we, um, you know, it's like in the midst of all of that, everybody's at their best. Mm-hmm. Somehow we just step up to the plate, right? Yeah. Because it's up to us now. Yeah. And and we just did what we had to do. And there was just this incredibly beautiful service we did mm-hmm. uh, in, in Little Tokyo. It was mm-hmm. very, very powerful for, for all of us to pass through. Now we have the reality of a center with no founder. Right. And somebody needs to step forward. And, and I guess Roshi Glassman... Uh, had commitments he couldn't break. He had he had his song, his right. centers going, and right. so you had to invite somebody from your yeah. center so, to take so over. So Roshi Glassman, you know, many of the successors were here, and yeah. those of us who were had been here a while were here. So we all gathered together, and we'd have these talks and meetings, and and uh, all of these successors really had commitments already. They all had their own groups. They had their families, their children, and there was nobody who could say, yes, I'll just move move into ZCLA, <laughs> you, you, you know. Uh, and there was one successor, however, who, although he was not eager to take on something like this, because uh, he had not lived in community, uh, agreed to do it. You know, out of his own love and respect for Maizumi Roshi, said, he would give it a try. So he was named as the resident teacher. And uh, resident teachers were put in place at our mountain center. One of them was already there. Um, and, and a married person, so the, the, the pair, the couple went there. And Roshi Glassman continued as the abbot overseer of both. Okay. But, but it was given to the resident teachers to then 
just move forward and just just be in the space of this this death of our founder in his direction his way of doing things his huge imprint yes you know and so we just had to continue on and you know before Maizumi Roshi died he and I were already in conversation about my leaving because I was sort of ready to 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 go into a different environment Mm. and although I didn't know what that was so you know, we were going to finish up my study because I was very close to finishing for Dharma Transmission. And then, of course, he dies, right? <laughs> Go figure. <laughs> so, Roshi Glassman asked me if I would move to New York and help him with this time of transition hmm. because I had been working very closely with Maizumi Roshi and I knew his worlds, you know. So, I agreed to do that. And I had... Uh, uh, taken Bernie Glassman on and he had taken me on now as my new teacher Wonderful. and so you know he wanted uh, to to have me there so he could also see you know where I was in my practice and to uh, finish my transmission studies which we did and um, it's an interesting thing for me actually because had I become a successor of Maizumi Roshi I think I would have felt um, a certain a certain need to do things in a particular way and I would have taken a lot longer to find my own my own expression yes but it's like because suddenly I was the successor of Roshi Glassman who was already doing things in a very different way because he had been addressing American students in the American context and being an American himself, right? Yes. For, you know, a very long time now. Yeah. Maybe 25 years or so, maybe more. And so suddenly I was with somebody who had a completely different approach. At the same time, deep, deep understanding and deep grounding. So it gave you some options. There yeah. wasn't just one way of doing it. Right. And, and it been... was like... I was in Zen finishing school. I always said I was in Zen finishing yeah. school. Yeah. And it was a huge liberation of sorts. You, you know? Sure, sure. Uh, so I, I, I consider, it's like Maizumi Roshi gave me this huge gift. Yes. He just handed me off. And although these are two very different people and very different teachers, it was a seamless transition in terms of my own study. It was just a very powerful time. So I worked with Roshi Glassman. Uh, in that time, and I made trips back to ZCLA okay. because Maizen Roshi's belongings and Dharma things were all here, and there was a lot of sorting through and trying to figure out what we're going to do with, mm-hmm. with everything. And you ended up doing a book on, on yes to celebrate his life? Yes. Okay. Yes, it's called Appreciate Your Life. Appreciate Your Life. Mm-hmm. Now, when Maizen Roshi died, uh-huh. tremendous energy was unleashed. And I think we all felt it. It's like rather than being concentrated in the one body, it was everywhere. Yeah. And I think all the successors felt it. All of us who had studied with him felt it. And, you know, the experience was like we were riding on this huge wave of energy. Mm. And every so often, my Zoom, uh, Roshi Glassman would say to me, well, now let's see what happens. Because in his, <laughs> because in his experience... Uh-huh. Having seen a lot of founding teachers die and all the upheaval yes. that follows that, it's like sooner or later something falls apart because now it's like the pieces are not in place as they were and there's like a settling that happens. Uh-huh. So, and I'm like, well, yeah, I wonder what he means, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and a year and a half after Maizumi Roshi's death, there was trouble again at ZCLA. Mm. So the resident teacher was in trouble. Uh, Lots of drinking Mm -hmm. and uh, some involvement, I don't know how involved, with a couple of his women students. Now, you mentioned that he hadn't lived in community before. Right. And I have found, after living in community for a number of years, that it does give you a different way to look at a center when you live there. Oh, doesn't it, though? <laughs> and, and not visit. Do, do you think he, there might have been a different outcome if he had been 
living in community before he took over? Probably so. Okay. He probably would not have agreed to do it. No, I'm just, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Could be. That's though. not true at all. But um, yes. Yes. Okay. It's hard to explain what community or sangha residential living is like. So actually, living in community is could be looked at as part of your training as well. It is absolutely dynamic training. You, you know, because suddenly you actually are living with people that you probably would not have chosen to live with otherwise. That's right. And this is not to say anything disparaging about no. people. No. But, you know, we tend to live with the people that we feel connected to. Sure. Or related to. Or yeah. some, or, or at least comfortable with. Or at least comfortable with. Yeah. And, of course, you know, we know everybody and anybody can come to the Dharma. And, uh, and we're all, you know... Uh, not just studying the Dharma, but as we said earlier, we're studying ourselves. And whoa, is that an adventure? Yes, it is. Learning who we are. And, and then everybody's got to learn who you are, too. Yes, Of they course, do. they learn it faster than you do, but... <laughs> <laughs> it's true. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> and, and then this whole dynamic is going on, and, of course, you've got, in the middle of that, a center that is at sea because of all the transitions and things that have happened. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So now we've got a year and a half. Uh, things were sort of rocky, and he's asked to leave, I guess. Yes. And now there's a vacancy. Now there's a vacancy, and uh, Roshi Glassman asked me if I would consider going back, and he was v- very reluctant to ask. He came to me and said, Now, I know, I know that you do not want to do this. Now, if, if I can just interrupt for a second, because yeah. in our... In our last interview, the part that got uh, the technical difficulties, <laughs> you mentioned uh, in that, and I'm just recalling it, that when you heard that th- that he was asked to step down, your body shook. Yeah. When you, I when you, I heard that something had happened at yes. ZCLA, not even knowing all the details, I did experience that completely physical, yeah. visceral body thing that went. Oh, no. I just knew on some level that I would have to become involved in it, mm-hmm. you, you know. And um, I spoke to, I, I went to Bernie Glassman. He had not told me that something had happened. Mm-hmm. I don't know who told me. But in any case, I went to Roshi Glassman. He had just heard about it like a week prior. And I went to him and I said, I heard about this. And he says, Yes. You know, I learned about it this week, and he said, you know, I'm, you know, just learning about it and, you know, not jumping to any conclusions. You know, we need to, I need to learn what it, what is going on and what's happening there. So he was in that process, and I said, well, I'm really shocked because this was someone I knew and not anybody I would have expected to be in this position, but, you know, we're all vulnerable. Mm-hmm. And um, I asked Roshi Glassman, can I call him? And he said, of course. So I called and we spoke. And, and I, I said to him that, you know, I was really surprised. And I think I might have even laughed. I said, I, we know what's going on. And, and I remembered what Maizumi Roshi had told me, you, you know, about how, you know, don't make excuses for yourself. Yes. Or, you know, you can consider not making excuses. And just, you know, say to the Sangha, you know, I did this. And I really am sorry. And... You know, let's figure out what we can do about it instead of make your amends and your reparations and try to hold your seat and go through, you know. And I said to him, you know, if you can do this, you know, it could be an incredible thing. And I said, I'm not saying I could do this, and I'm not saying you should do it. I said, but, you know, just think about this as a possibility. And and then people from the center who were sanghas began to call me and after a while, I said, look, I can't talk to anybody. I don't want to be triangulated in this mm. because I'm not there to see what's actually happening. Sure, it's all and secondhand it's information. It's all secondhand, yeah. and yeah. I want out of this whole thing. Yeah. And so at that point, I cut off communications with everyone. Okay. And so it was in that context. And then Bernie Glassman flew here, and you know, other people got involved in trying to see what could happen. Mm-hmm. But there was such a, a division. Yeah. It was so divisive, it was really beyond... So now he's talking to you and saying, I know you don't want to do it, but we need you in L.A.? 
I'd like you to I'd like you to go yeah. and and do some healing work is how he put it. Okay. And I said, well. And you like the installment plan, so did you give him I a like timeline? I like the installment line? plan. I said three months. Three months. Okay. I said, and if I go back, uh-huh. I said, you know, there's certain things I think the sangha could benefit from, and if you will give me permission to 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 do what I think needs to be done, what intuitively I feel needs to be done, I said, then I'm willing. But I'm not willing to go and just have myself second-guessed at every turn. I said, I'm just not willing to do that. Yep. And, and he said, you've, you've got it. He said, I will support you, and you do what you feel needs to be done there. I agree to your three months. And I also you know, felt deeply that I owe this to Maizumi Roshi. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I, my teacher, Bernie Glassman, was now making this request of me. And that I would do it. Okay. You know, it's the least I could do. Sure. And so I went back. Okay. Uh, went back. I came back here. Yeah. April 15th. I remember it was income tax. April 15th. Do you remember the, uh, <laughs> the, the, the year? 1970. Uh, I'm sorry. 1997. 1997. Yeah. Well, we know the three months was extended, uh, which is a good thing. One of the things that I find interesting about the way you're doing it here is the fact that you're bringing the Sangha community together. Uh, there are certain obligations of practice necessary to live here now, but also the, the idea of getting community members involved through um, dialogue discussions, sitting in a circle, talking sticks. Could you just talk a little bit about why you thought that would work? Yes. And is it working? Yes. This is an actually important point. One of the things I realized when I came back, or I'd been thinking about, is that as Zen people, in the way we were trained, it was always, you know, face the wall. And our relationship was strictly hierarchical. Mm. It was strictly in the vertical plane. So it was student-teacher, student-teacher. We're all like crazy student-teacher people. And there was no horizontal or sangha building. So it was very clear to me that this was a huge dimension that was missing and that it needed to be addressed. And my inclination was always to kind of sit people in circles. And I think that's the thing that women have, you know, (laughs) and see everybody's face and hear everybody's voice. So at the time I was starting to learn about a practice of counsel and that with my inclination to sit people in circles. I began to call people together in circles. And I told people when I came that I was not going to hold private teaching interviews because Mm. I did not want further triangulation. I did not want to hear what everybody had to say, what their story was, what went wrong with the center, and be the receptacle of all that. And so I said, if you've got anything to say, we're going to sit in a circle and you're going to sit into the circle. Put it in the circle. We're all going to hear. We're all going to be informed. We're all going to move off my personal point of view. We're going to hear how everybody was affected. But not addressed to anyone specifically. Not addressed to anyone specifically. Okay. We're putting it all into the circle. And the, the circle is just this big vessel, right? This emptiness. Huh? This big, empty, not knowing vessel, okay. right? That's our ground of, of being. Exactly. And each of us, you know, each of us is the Dharma. Each of us is sharing from our own experience what our truth is. Whatever that is, we can only speak from our experience. And no one can argue about experience because that's my experience, right? Exactly. And then in the hearing of this, you know, in the bearing witness to all of this, you know, we find ourselves just expanded. Hey, I'm suddenly all, all of this. And in that very act... There's a healing that occurs. There's an action of expanding into a more universal being. Could right? you call it community as well? Community. Creating community. Sangha. Community. Yeah. Because yeah. Sangha is all of us. Yes. It's not just how little me is relating to my idea of what everybody should be doing. That's right. But it's suddenly, wow, everybody's this jewel. Yeah. 
The Sangha jewel is each one of us. You you, you know, no matter how much we might be a diamond in the rough, Mm -hmm. it is us in this very moment, place and time. And it's not just student-teacher. And it's not just student-teacher because what we learn is everyone is the teacher. In the horizontal dimension, everybody is the teacher. Everybody's wisdom and compassion comes forward. And then when this is done together, we see a further arising of the wisdom and compassion of the entire circle. And could you say everyone is also the student? Absolutely. Absolutely. Everyone is the student, including the teacher, the the so-called teacher who is sitting in the circle. So what it allowed me to do was to be a student in the circle. And that continues. I, I continue in that way today. I don't lead. I lead very few circles. I enter the circle as a student. Mm. You, you know, yeah, yeah. and I can learn, and it gives me a whole other dimension of people. Because I today, of course, I see people individually sure. in in the Dokusan room, the one to one meeting room, and in there, there's a very particular kind of interaction. Mm-hmm. But I also sit in the circle, and I learn about these students and my fellow Dharma practitioners from a whole other dimension. Mm-hmm. And that's and they learn about me from a whole other sure, place. Sure. So that's a very powerful thing. So the circle practices was a very important thing that we began to do. And how do you keep people speaking one at a time? We use a talking piece. A talking piece. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And you have one talking piece yeah. or many talking we pieces? We have many. We started with one, but okay. now we have a collection because people love to donate I see. particular things that they have that they feel would be a a talking piece for the Sangha. So we have things like teddy bears. Mm -hmm. We have gemstones and crystals. We have rocks, you you know, um, just all kinds of musical instruments, you you know, all kinds of things. So now we will put out four or five, and people can exchange them as we go. But the point of it is this. When you have a talking piece, you're Ah. the one who speaks, and everyone else listens. Mm. And when you don't have the talking piece, you listen. And we say we listen from the heart. Listen with your whole body. And we're not even interrupting the speaker with our thoughts and our judgments and opinions. So this also means that when we have the piece, whether it's been handed us because it's going around a circle or we've picked it up from the center of the circle, then we have not prepared our spiel. Oh, really? There's no pre-thought involved. There's no pre-thought. Now, Ah. of course, there is, and we train ourselves not to have it. Okay. We will speak from our heart. Whatever truth is arising for us is what we're going to speak. So it's a practice on many, many, many dimensions. And, you know, we just started. We were totally unskilled in it, completely. People didn't like it. In the very beginning, people would storm off, walk out of the middle of the circle. And I would say, yeah. that's fine, yeah. you know, but we would designate like hour and a half when we started. We might have started with an hour because it was so hard for us to do this. Well, I would think people probably heard things they never thought they'd hear. Yes. If you're speaking from your heart and listening with your heart. Yeah. And, and we surprise our own selves at what comes out of our heart. Yeah. What comes out of the deepest recesses of our being. Oh, Again, yeah. you know, you create a ritual space. Uh-huh. And when that space is created, then we, in some sense, are no longer posturing about who we are. Yeah. Something else comes out of us, you, you know? Yes, yes. And it, it's, it's quite profound. Yeah. Quite profound. And because we're also training ourselves to listen, uh-huh. we, we find ourselves being able to take in points of view that we normally would say, oh, yeah. What what is what is he talking about? <laughs> and suddenly we can listen to it uh-huh. and and not really have that commentary. We say, oh yeah, well I can understand why people might might take that view. And then before you know it, you start taking that view, right? Because <laughs> because you're so losing the gap between yourself and another person. Uh-huh. Suddenly you're just embracing that. You, yeah. you know, it's very powerful. So the amazing thing about it is that when people would walk out of the circle and for all the complaining they did about it, they always came back mm. to do the next circle. Mm-hmm. This was a powerful learning for us 
So that now, eight years later, none of us could imagine practicing without circle. And I always laugh because I have many people who have come to practice here and they only know the circle form, uh, in addition, of course, to the other practices. But I, I, I kid them and I says, I wonder what will happen to you when you have to go practice at a Zen center that does not do circles. Exactly. Because it would be so difficult to be in an environment with this kind of openness. Yeah. Uh, which is not to say that Zen centers are not open, but this way of being with each other mm-hmm. is not so much a part of it that you, you can't imagine, you just think that's, that's how it is. Yeah. That was a big part of the work that we did here. And speaking of practice now, I, I, I know for a while you said anybody could live here. They didn't have to practice. But I'm assuming that since you've been back, that's changed. And yes. so what's required now? Um, say somebody uh, listening to this says, I want to go practice at Zen Center Los Angeles. I want to be part of uh, Roshi Egoku's Sangha. W- what, would they, what would they look uh, to expect from you? Do they have to practice? Uh, do they have to participate in Sangha events? Yeah. Well, first of all, I want to say it, it's not my Sangha. Okay. You, you know, it's really, uh, it's our Sangha. Our Sangha. Uh, so you're the facilitator? Well, you know, I am the abbot, but it's not, I don't consider it mine in that sense. Of course, okay. you know, it's mine in the sense that I have certain responsibilities, sure. but, but everybody thinks of it as, as mine. Wonderful. You, you yeah, know, I so, so it's, we have a, a model which we call shared stewardship, which I'll uh, talk about in a minute. And, okay, and good. This is why I want to make Thank this you. point because it's an important point. It is important. But what you're asking is also important. It's like how to reclaim the integrity of a, of a center. You know, uh, was a very big piece of the work that we all did here. So one of the things that was happening, as you mentioned, is when I returned with all of the upheavals, Maizumi Roshi's death and the subsequent upheaval, is there were people living here who actually weren't practicing and felt they were entitled to be here. Hmm. So one of the first things that I did was I formed a, a small group of people who were people who had lived here a long time, who knew Maizumi Roshi, and who I know would be willing to work on regaining the integrity of the residential community. And so we call them the Buddha hand circle, the Buddha hand being that great big citrus Uh that grows in Asia. It's like a big, huge lemon that has fingers, and it's actually called the Buddha hand, Buddha's hand. I didn't know that. Somebody had given me a tree when I came back, and I thought, we'll call this the Buddha hand circle. You know, the hands of the Buddha are going to work on this community. And in the meantime, just to get us started, I had said, these are the minimum criteria now. And you need to do, I don't know, X number of sits a week and, you know, pay your rent on time because there are people living here rent-free, in quotes, and not doing any community uh, Samu work, physical work, and the upkeep of the place. You know, all the things that we ask people to do sure. in a community setting. So I laid it the most minimal, minimal standards you could imagine. Well, some people got very angry about that even. That's the shape we're in. And so this circle, the Buddha hand circle, took charge of this and began to look at each resident, had private interviews with each. Now, it was a circle of people, like maybe three or four at the time, and um, we began to ask people to leave. You know, we say, you're not meeting this criteria. If you can't, then it's, this is time for you to move on. And in one case, we even took someone to court. Yeah. Like, a, you know, somebody had been with us for 20 years. Mm-hmm. And this was really difficult work. And to this day, I'm so grateful this, to this group. Because I know how hard it is to stand, you know, face to face with people you have been living with for years, sure, y- you know, and who really ought not to be living here anymore. But this work was done, and we went through some powerful times. And out of that grew the standards we have today. Okay. And then every year, every year to eight, 18 months, every resident goes under review. So each person does a self-review according to our standards, and uh, the community of residents does a review. They sit in council. And then I do a piece of the review. And at the end of this, we decide 
do you need to continue living here? You, you know, um, perhaps it's time to move on, or you can continue and there, there's areas you need to attend to. And so this is what we do now. It's a very transparent way that we, we do it. Mm-hmm. And as a result, we have evolved a very strong residential sangha. It sounds like it. And it's, it's quite wonderful. It took us a number of years. And, sure. the, and the residents sit in council every other month. They have a resident council that happens. And that took a while to gel. Mm-hmm. But there's a tremendous maturing in that process that had, has happened to, to the point where I think you know, we all feel really great about the residential community, its part in the larger sangha, and that we've really regained our integrity uh, as Zen practitioners in, in community. Of course, it didn't come easily. We no. went through all kinds of, you know, nightmarish experiences with, e- with each other, okay. and we learned from them all. Sure. And yeah. so if somebody wanted to move in, do you have openings, or is there a waiting list? There's a waiting list. And if somebody wanted just to visit and not live here, do you have a, a visiting residential yes. program? Yes, we have a wonderful, what we call a guest resident program. Okay. And those are in rooms, and we have maybe five, six rooms open at a time. And people can come anywhere from a few days to three months as a guest resident. Okay. Yeah, it's a wonderful program. We have people from all over the world come. And can they get more information on your website yes. about that? And yes. what is your website address? www.zencenter.org. Zencenter.org. Okay, yes. that's an easy yes. one to remember. Yeah. Good. Yeah. And if I could just speak a little bit Please. about the shared model that we yeah. evolved out of this process. Okay. So after we were doing a lot of cleanup at the center, meaning cleaning up our buildings, you know, everything. Um, it was a, a tremendous work. But after a few years, this is just, so maybe about year 2000, something like that, three years I'd been here, I was really very, very exhausted. And what had happened in those intervening years is a sangha began to form again here. And people came forward and saw the condition we were in, but made the decision, for whatever their personal reasons were, that they wanted to practice here. And they were willing to put in the effort it took to kind of rebuild ZCLA. Some of these people knew Maizumi Roshi. Some of them had never met him, you you know. And, um, you know, after working together for a number of years and taking care of the immediate things, like starting to refurbish the buildings, having the need to attend to our financial situation, which was rather dire at the time. Uh, I felt that I had sort of come to the end of a particular phase and that it needed to be broadened out and we needed to think about how we were going forward because the old model, you know, the old hierarchical model was not appropriate for us but what were we going to do? Mm-hmm. And so at that point, I had a small group of people who were starting to look at the financial condition of the center. And we had let our old financial systems collapse because they were beyond Band-Aid, you, you know? Yeah. And with the new technologies and everything, I just said, well, let it collapse. And we're going to put a whole new thing into place. Although, you know what? I don't know what it is that we're going to do. And so one of them came to me and said, you know, we need a larger core group. He says, and I said, well, how many? And he said, well, at least if you had 15. You could see how much we'd shrunk. And I said, okay. I said, let's do shared leadership. And he said, oh, no, we're not going to go down the shared leadership path, he said, because when I was getting my doctorate, this is what I wanted to do. And everybody talked me out of it because they said it's just too much work and it never works in the end. And I said, well, you know, I don't know much about it, but it sounds good to me. So if you'll just humor me, uh, I'd, I'd like to, I'll do a course. I said, I'll do a course called Shared Leadership, <laughs> not knowing anything about it. And I sent out a letter of invitation to all of our sangha then. Uh-huh. And I said, you know, this is where we are today. And now we need to go forward and look at what we're going to create here at ZCLA. And we need to figure it out together. You know, I don't have the answers. Come together and let's figure it out together. And 40 people came. Wow. Now, 
yeah, what That's was a big I? Deal. What was I to do with forty people? I didn't know how to do with deal with forty people, and um, but there we were. And I had designed by designed. I said, I mean, I had set a schedule for nine months of course, and the course was that we would meet one Sunday a month for four for five hours for an afternoon, four or five hours, like one to five or something. And after those nine months, I was going to go on a three-month leave. And they would spend those three months figuring out how the center was was going to run. (laughs) So here we are in the first class. And there's 40 people. And I'm like, what am I going to do? And and there were people who were old-timers and people who had just come to the center. All of these people. So the first thing we decided to do was talk about were were we going to pay for this class or not? Because money was a big issue. And of course, the whole thing blew up right there. People were so upset, you know. I didn't come here to talk about money, you know. And I said, well, I'm sorry, but this is one of the big issues we're facing. So anyway, we managed to get through that, and we came up all together. We came up with a plan on what the course fee would be. And that was sort of a big deal in a way, although we may not have felt it at the time. Yeah. But the other thing I realized is we needed to get on the same page. So you needed consensus. At some, you needed to have people on board looking yeah. at it. Yeah. yeah, but not consensus in the way that every single person had to agree on everything. Okay. But, you know, we could live with the decision that the group seemed to be headed towards. Okay. So that's a little different, I think, So there was consensus. compromise. Yeah, and not even compromise. Okay. There was agreement. Agreement. I say there was agreement, okay. right? Like that. That's a better word for us. I like that. But so anyway, so then I said, okay, we need to get on the same page about what ZCLA is. It's history and how we got to be where we are now. So I started, and this lasted for five months, telling the center's story. And other people chimed in, starting with Maizumi Roshi came to America in 1956. <laughs> wow. We had photographs. And, you know, we talked about... And did you record this at all? No. Oh. So now everybody is, you know, sort of saying to me, uh, we need to record this history. And they're yeah. right. And I have a yeah. member now who's going to do it because Good. he's been inspired by your podcast, oh, quite frankly. Oh, wonderful. Wonderful. So we're going to start to do that. Good. But in any case... Um, we told the center's entire story as best we could remember. And um, we got up to the scandal in 83. What had happened in 83 was that previous to the big breakdown, the center had agreed, had accepted uh, an, an invitation from a graduate student in Princeton to come and film ZCLA because this was one of the thriving centers in the in the United States at the time, and as part of her graduate work, she wanted to do a short film. And hmm. so the invitation we had accepted that she could come, but when she got here, the center had just blown up. Oh, <laughs> of all times. Huh? Wow. And so I guess the big discussion was among you know the the people who were. Uh, involved in those things was, well, what do we do? And Maizumi Roshi said, let her come and let her film whatever she wishes to film because this is what's happening. And, you know, that's an amazing thing for him to say. So I did not involve myself in the filming. I I remember I said I didn't want to be interviewed because I didn't even understand what was going on myself. And um, that film is available. And I, I did not view it all these years, you, you know. But when it came time to telling the sangha about what had happened, I remember there was this video called Zen Center. And someone here happened to have it, an old-timer happened to have it. And I said to him, uh, if you have a copy, I'd like to view it because I want to show the film, whatever it is. I want to show it to the class. And I viewed the film, and I was deeply moved by the film. Maizumi mm. Roshi... Uh, speaks about what happened from his viewpoint Mm. and what he had gone through. And it's very, very powerful teaching that comes across there. Uh, So I showed the film. I showed the film. And one of the things that happened in showing that film 
was it was not that people were so blown away or involved in what had happened, but they were deeply impacted by the fact that the film was shown and that it was put out on the table and that we could just take a look. Yeah. Yeah. That was so mm. powerful. Mm-hmm. And so... 83, we went through all the years that you and I have talked about. Then we come to... Ni- oh, we come to the L.A. riots in 92, which had a deep impact on this center and how we survived being in the midst of a f- burning Los Angeles, as you know. Were you here then? Uh, you know, I moved in just after that. I oh. moved in in 93. What a time. So, yes. Anyway. I can remember seeing the smoke from downtown Los Angeles. You know, just over the city. Ring of fires. East ring L.A. Fire. was in a ring of fire. Yeah. All the looting and the shooting. and Well, we survived that. Maizumi Roshi himself was in Mexico leading a sashin when that happened. Uh, so we talked about that period of time. And, uh, and then moved into 95, the death of Maizumi Roshi. Now, at that time, uh, the way Maizumi Roshi died was not widely known because there were other, you know, factors that had arisen, like, you know, his family and his children, of sure. course, uh, uh, their privacy was respected and their need, you know, their, their, their need to have this time to uh, learn about it and talk about it themselves. And so subsequently we had learned that Maizumi Roshi had drowned and um, that he had been drinking. Was it like a swimming pool he was in? Uh, it was a, a Japanese hot tub. A hot tub. Yeah, which if you've been in, you know that you could drown in one of those yeah, without okay. drinking because of just the heat, the, the, how hot the water is. Yeah. But anyway, he had returned um, from his brother's, one of his brother's temples to another, mm. uh, completely exhausted as we know he already was, and had spent the day visiting his mother's grave, I believe, mm. at the family temple, and had returned to Tokyo which is the temple that he normally stayed at. And, you know, as I understand, had gone to take a hot bath very late at night, and the next morning he was found Mm. in the tub. So we had not, you know, we weren't told this right away. We discovered it ourselves. And uh, so that was a whole other, other learning for me about going through all of that and learning about his death and, Oh, having to deal with all the things around that. Yeah. So I put that all out for the group, you know. Before I did it, however, I had no idea who knew and who didn't. Yeah. So what I did was I identified the students of Maizumi Roshi, those who knew him, who were then practicing at ZCLA. Mm-hmm. And I called them together in a group. And I said, you know, I need to make sure you all know this before I speak about it in a public way. And some of them knew and some of them didn't. Some of them were just totally caught off guard, like I was when I found out, you know. But in any case, I made sure they all knew. And uh, so then when it came time for the class, uh, you know, they already knew this information and could have a time to deal with it, as we all needed time to do. And... um, I just laid it out for the class. So people reacted in many different ways. I think we may have lost a few people then who were furious, and that just absolutely justified for them what a rotten group we were Mm. and how rotten our teachers were and all the reactions to, yeah, Yeah. well, I'm not surprised or, okay, you know, now we know, and that does not denigrate who he was and our in you know because of our experiences with him we have we know other dimensions of him and now we have we can kind of integrate the whole of who he was Mm -hmm. so it was one of these times when again you 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 really stretch and you just go through all the things you need to go about it yeah so 95 okay so then we go through (laughs) 97 and then we talked about what had happened that time. People yeah. who were here could share that. And then I could bring them up from 97 to where we were and all the things that we were attending to right now. Okay. You know, in rebuilding the center. Just just the many things that we had to all take care of. And all this is to time. that core group of people. 
yes. that committed this is for to our months. 40 people who 40 committed people. for a year a year wow committed for a year that's amazing it was pretty powerful yeah so in that year it took five months as i said to yeah. figure out what we we're about and then we listed all the ingredients of the center we spent another five just listing all the things all the things then we got them together and we said okay this financial piece is critical to us now and we formed a group called the executive circle they had already i think i'd already formed them and it was four men and a woman uh, a couple of whom had a lot of financial expertise and they knew people to ask and others who just were had just committed themselves to to reviving ZCLA, you know? And so this, these four people got together and they be, they were working uh, in a very concentrated and intense way on trying to figure out the whole thing. And it was wonderful to watch them because... You, Four people completely different. It's like what we're talking about in yeah. community coming together. Yep. Completely different working styles, completely different way of, ways of expressing themselves, coming together. And, you know, I am so grateful to this group because they kept coming back together in the midst of all of this difficulty. Mm. And somehow through it all, they were able to create this incredible foundation and framework for the Zen Center to rebuild itself financially. <laughs> it's really pretty amazing yeah. how they were able to do that, yeah. you, you know. Wow. And um, But they did it. And so today, the Executive Circle is, of course, one of our founding foundational circles of the Center. The other thing we did is I called together another group, whoever wanted to come, you, you know, and we started going through... Um, a mission, vision, and core values hmm. of ZCLA. It took us two years to figure out what we're going to say about ourselves. Okay. And, and not really knowing, you know, but we put together the mission, vision, core values, which we're now revisiting. So now you have all these years later. Uh, I think in 99, uh, I'm sorry, yeah, 99 we adopted them. And we're astounded, and I'm astounded, at how much we have lived these out. Hmm. It's, it was a really less, a deep lesson for me uh-huh. because I don't tend to work in this way, and yet it really worked for us. You, you know, that when you say my value is this, that you actually end up living by it. And when you don't clarify it, yeah. then you never quite get what you're all about. You, you know, so it's this precision, this clarification of it. And we may not know how it's going to unfold, but we're being directed mm-hmm. in such a fundamental way that it, it's like a vow. Yeah. You know, your vow takes yeah. you over, and it begins to unfold in all these incredible, surprising ways. So, so that's kind of what happened for us. Mm. And, and then um, other groups have formed, other circles have formed that look after the Sangha and the organization. We were able to c- come up with an incredible board over time. And um, now the latest circle that's emerged is a health circle. Hmm. where people who are interested in looking at the health of the Sangha, uh, not just organizationally or communally, but individually, how we support people mm-hmm. in, in times of, of need. Hmm. you know. And we have a little brown-green group that's formed, which we're looking at the environmental thrust of the Sangha. So yeah. all of these things now are emerging. We have a teacher's circle. We have a circle that looks at what would a Zen curriculum look like over the long haul? What would Zen training really look like in our context? Mm-hmm. So all of these things have been uh, arising, and um, it's been a very powerful thing. And the shared leadership, we now call shared stewardship, which means that everyone who comes here is a steward of the center mm. from the get-go. Okay. You know, like we value you, and we, and we work together so that each of us can mature in, in this way. We say we, we take on the three minds of the mature person, which is the magnanimous mind, which for us means learning the big, big, big view. And uh, nurturing mind, which is the mind that cares for ourselves and other people. Mm. And um, joyful mind, mm. which is really allowing... Should I say allowing our joy, yeah. our fundamental joy that is there about this life to emerge, 
you, you know? Yeah. And to and to to and to express it, to be able to ex- express, you know, mm-hmm. the kind of wonderment that we actually do begin to tap in in this practice once we kind of see through all of our own <laughs> suffering. And it does turn out to be a joyful practice. It does. I, I think our sense of humor uh, is broader and uh, yeah. our wit might become sharper. But it, yeah. I know a lot of people think that Zen is very serious and yeah. you can't smile. Yeah. And you always look at the ground. And right. Yeah. Right. Y- yeah, and, and, and that's a fascinating thing. You Isn't know, we, we start to live out our idea that is this gloomy, morose, <laughs> serious thing. Uh-huh. I mean, how can it be spiritual if you're laughing? Exactly. And and some and, and unfortunately, a lot of our Japanese Zen forms reinforce that. Mm. And so, one of the things we are about here is to really we've questioned our forms, and we've kept those that serve a real function, and we're looking for those that will broaden out our expression of dharma. So we talked about the circle form, and the circle is one of those forms, you know, that we can sit in not knowing. In other words, go back, as you said, to emptiness. Just clear it all out. We can really bear witness, you know, each person is Buddha. Mm -hmm. We could actually, if we could keep our mouths shut long enough, actually begin to recognize that, you, you know? And then we see how this interacts. We see our inter... Dependency. Mm-hmm. We, we, we actually viscerally experience our one body in a, in a circle, you, you know? Yeah. And so that's a form that I think for Western Buddhists is absolutely critical yeah. to explore. And so we're always looking at w- what are their forms? What are these and, forms? And what I hear is you're taking a Japanese Zen model and making it American yeah. or Western yeah. and applicable to people that live here. Yeah. In this community, in this city, in this state, in this country. Our culture needs the forms where we can communicate in a deep way. We have so little of that available to us in our lives. So let's embed that. Because in those forms we find this incredible expression of Dharma. Yeah. You know? So I'm always looking. It's an authentic Authentic. expression. Absolutely authentic. And I believe human beings have been sitting in circles, you know. Yeah. Ever since there were more than one. <laughs> <laughs> you only need two or more. That's right. <laughs> Sitting around the fire when yeah. we discovered fire. Sure. What uh, a yeah. natural thing. Isn't of that course. the most natural thing? And probably eating in circles as well. And sharing Eating food, in circles and being in isolate. Our, our culture is, yes. is so alienating. It is. And we had so many people who come. In fact, once we talked about the city of L.A. and living in L.A., and one of the things that came out of it is that for those who move to L.A. and don't have a lot of connections, it's a hard city to break into. Very hard. For all of its sunshine and all of that, Mm -hmm. um, people say that they they experience periods of such isolation that it forced them to develop a spiritual life. Yep. And yep. seek community. Yeah. And, you know, this is a wonderful thing. And you wouldn't think that would be the case with eight or nine million people living together. Yes. But it can be a very lonely place. Yes. Without the sangha, yes. without community. Yeah. And it c- can be lonely within a sangha if there are not the forms where we can connect in a yes. real way. Yes. Y- you know? So this has just been part of the kinds of things that we're addressing. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's it's been wonderful. And... And I, I must say, uh, I, I, I really appreciate you taking the time again uh, to speak. And personally, uh, I think the second time was better. So <laughs> it came out differently this it, time, it, right? <laughs> it did. It did. I, it's, it's much more indefinite. And it was wonderful. Yeah. And I appreciate the opportunity to speak to you. Oh. And I have not done this kind of thing about talking about my journey. Yeah. And um, it's been very helpful for me too to start to revisit you know all that has gone into creating recreating this sangha yeah. and uh, and listening to parts of my own journey has been very helpful for me it was mm. actually very moving for me mm. although i will say i have doubts about speaking so personally to the whole world and all of you that i will never get to see 
But on the other hand, if someone can benefit from it, then I'm happy to offer it. Wonderful. And I'm sure they can. And I'm sure they will. And so, um, gosh, well, I guess until the next time we get to talk, you know, it's been wonderful sharing hours with you and and listening to your journey and listening to the journey of Zen Center Los Angeles. Thank you. And I'm happy to just be living down the street and can come over. Yes, it's just wonderful. And I hope there were no technical difficulties this time and that I didn't pull on anything. I I think everything (laughs) has went wonderfully. And so uh, thank you again. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Bye. Well, that's it. That's the end of part three, the final part of my interview with Roshi Egyoku, the abbot of Zen Center of Los Angeles. I hope you found it useful, and I hope you found it interesting. If you'd like to know more about the Zen Center of Los Angeles, please go to their website, www.zencenter.org. If you'd like to know more about me, please visit my website, kusala, K-U-S-A-L-A dot info. And if you'd like to contact me by email, my address is kusala at urbandharma.org. Well, until the next time, until the next podcast, be happy, be peaceful, and most of all, be free from suffering. <laughs>